Hey everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. This week we're going to be talking about Pacific Rim, the 2013 action-adventure monster movie. Uh, if you haven't seen that, we do recommend watching it. It's probably going to make this podcast a little more interesting to listen to. So Mike, what is Pacific Rim about? If you're like me, the Muppets were a staple of your childhood. From Treasure Island to Manhattan to Outer Space, we've seen this delightful cast of colorful characters tackle every adventure under the sun over the past several decades. Well, in 2013, our lovable friends were given one final setting to work their charm within, the biblical apocalypse. And perhaps the single greatest spectacle of puppet theater ever, Muppets Pacific Rim. We see that this fine director takes Kermit, Miss Piggy, and the rest of our beloved cloth friends into the heart of the end of the world, using a ludicrous budget never foreseen in this genre to send us on a journey full of wacky, fuzzy, slimy, and bumbling monsters, clearly wired puppet robots, and a host of famous actors who still aren't sure how they ended up in this ludicrous film, all working together to create rumbling, tumbling, apocalyptic good time. I, I wish that we still had the FaceTime call or the Zoom call up so you could have seen my expression when you said the word Muppets for the first time. <laughs> I was, there was a lot going on on my face. Unfortunately, it's just not going to convey over audio. Uh, but but that, was, that was beautiful all the same. Uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Did you like the Muppets? I, I, I appreciate it. Welcome again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way, way too seriously. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by Mike Overstreet. Hello. And like we said, this is the Pacific Rim episode. Pacific Rim was a 2013 action monster, uh, probably a lot of other you know, descriptors, movies, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, to be honest, Mike, I just want to read, I just have two quotes I want to read. Okay. Go for it. And I think that with these quotes, if you hear this and you're not immediately in on this movie, then you'll never be in on this movie. Yeah. yeah the yeah. first is just the plot summary from Wikipedia. The film is set in the future when earth is at war with the Kaiju colossal sea monsters which have emerged from an interdimensional portal on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean to combat the monsters, humanity unites to create the Jaegers, gigantic humanoid mechas, each controlled by two co-pilots whose minds are joined by a mental link. Focusing on the war's later days, the story follows Raleigh Beckett, a washed-up Jaeger pilot, caught out of retirement and teamed with rookie pilot Mako Mori as part of a last-ditch effort to defeat the Kaiju. So that's already the best thing I've ever heard from the Otis Trailers YouTube series. From the from the YouTube series Otis Trailers, what they had to say was, it's either the most awesome dumb movie ever made or the dumbest awesome movie ever made. <laughs> yes. Um, Accurate. Accurate. It's, uh, 
It's slightly underperformed in the U.S., but it became a huge movie internationally. I didn't know this, actually. It became a huge movie internationally. It grossed $411 million worldwide. Uh, most of it, do you know, Mike, where they made most of their money? Uh, action figures? Uh, China, as a uh, matter of fact. I thought you meant what industry, but yeah. yes, that makes sense, too. I, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just kind of just kind of steeped past you. But yeah, China. Uh, and it is Guillermo del Toro's highest grossing movie, which I'm not sure if I knew either. That's so not that surprising. We, no, that, that's somewhat of a low bar, uh, but not maybe not a bad segue, because we start the episode talking about our history with the movie. And in this case, Mike, I'm also interested in your history with uh, Mr. Del Toro. What, what, what do you got for me? Oh, man. So where do I start? I guess I'll start with the movie. Um, this movie was incredibly John Wick-esque to me, where I saw the trailer and I was like, this movie looks dumb as hell. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, because John Wick had the same problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I get the, it. The, the trailer was just campy as all get out, and it kind of undersold the movie. Um, and it was also, I mean, it was at a time in which there were a lot of monster movies that I didn't really like coming out. And, uh, I don't know. I liked, I liked Del Toro a lot. So I kind of was like, ah, eh, maybe I'll see that one day on like on demand or something. But then it came out and, you know, it's one of those films where you keep seeing the Rotten Tomato scores is like really good. And you're like, well, I, I didn't see that coming. Had some friends who went up gushing about it. They're like, it's Gundam Wing meets Godzilla. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. So I finally All gave right, yeah. to went and saw it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it was awesome. It's one of those theater experiences that I will remember for a long time because it was so good on a big screen. Uh, in terms of Guillermo, he's such an interesting director to me because I think a lot of people mm -hmm. probably follow my track where they saw Pan's Labyrinth when they were first starting to get into, I don't want to say indie films, but definitely more like serious film scholarship in terms of... Less mainstream. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. yeah. Especially in like millennials like me, where that was just one of those introductory films like that in City of God and some of these other foreign films that were people were like, oh, you have to see this movie. And I remember seeing that in like the indie theater, Miracle 5, which was my home for a while. And... And just fell in love with him. I mean, we're going to talk about the monster creation and his creative imagering and, and just how good he is at kind of bringing to life fantastical elements. And that's what I've always appreciated about him. I love the Hellboy movies. Uh, well, love is a strong word. I really liked the Hellboy movies at a time <laughs> in which comic book movies were terrible. And I've always really enjoyed the ways that he brings monsters to life. So this might be the most exaggerated expression of that, but I love the dude mm -hmm. for that alone, even if yeah. his films don't always land with me. And, you know, that's if I could just jump off that real quick, because I, I like the way that you said I loved it. And then you thought he said, well, I, I liked it a little bit. Yeah, and and yeah. that kind of is my relationship with Del Toro in general, where I, I often get very caught up in his work and it's easy for me a lot of his movies i walk out of and i'm like that was incredible and then if if, if it sits for a couple weeks i'm like oh that was pretty good yeah you know what i mean it, it may or may not have the same lasting power and there might be i think also he kind of gets into the james cameron territory of or actually maybe even better would be tim burton territory of like such strong visualization 
sometimes at the cost of every other part of a movie that I care about. He's not as bad as Burton in that regard. Just, just to put that out there, I think to birds kind of trash in the last 15 years, but, but still in the same territory, right? In the same ballpark. Um, but weirdly having said that, I also haven't seen very many of his movies, which I only realized when I was researching this episode. And I realized that I actually haven't seen pants labyrinth nor Hellboy. Oh, um, what are you doing? Yeah, I, I know. I, I don't know what's going on. I haven't seen Blade either or Blade 2. Yeah. Uh, the, I think it's possible the only other movie I've seen from him is actually Shape of Water. Eee, yikes. Uh, I, which <laughs> I was also going to say I kind of like more than most people. Oh, I hate that um, movie. <laughs> I know you do. So I, I think it's a great movie. I think it's only if that movie hadn't won Best Picture, you would be talking about it like it was a great movie. No. I guarantee it. No. You'd be like, oh, that was a good movie. It's Oscar bait wrapped yeah. up in a weird premise. We're going to do Shape of Water <laughs> one day. Shape of Water podcast. The whole For 800th episode. episode. I would do it. I'm down. I'm I'm down to tell you're wrong for two hours straight. Shape of Water is a good movie. It's Does not it? a great. It's not. shouldn't have won Best Picture, but it's a good movie. Um, hey, remember when it beat Get Out? All of that. Okay. All of that being said, we're just, just, just blow it past that. Uh. Did it really beat Get Out? Yes. I thought that was a different year. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. Well, a lot of a, movies came out cold... that year that were way better than that movie. But let's move well, on. That's a cold take from your boy, huh? Yeah. That's not good. Okay. Um, <laughs> that really threw me off, but I'm just going to keep moving. <laughs> oh. Well, well, real quick, too, on Guillermo del Toro, I wish to God he had made the Hobbit movies instead oh, of yeah. reverting to Peter yep. Jackson. That and, and to be honest, though, like like all the narrative about that, um, which is all very murky, but it, you, whatever happened was really weird, and it doesn't seem like it was either of their faults. Like it was something with producers and and you know miscommunications, and it's, it just seems like really messy the way that that all played out. But if you don't know, he was uh, for listeners. If you don't know, he was slated to direct the Hobbit trilogy. And actually did a lot of the pre-work on it. I think yeah. he worked on it for, for like even years. Um, and then basically a lot of stuff went down and he ended up having to leave the project. But it was so close to filming that Peter Jackson was just like, I'm just going to take over as director. So a lot of, I think, the problems with The Hobbit come back to this guy who has a very particular style did all of the pre-work. But then this other guy who has a very different style came in at the last minute to actually do the directing. Well, and I, and I, I have a suspicion a, that would have been better if it hadn't happened. Yep. I think that's a perfect encapsulation of what what he's good at, which is a fairy tale low low complexity plot in which he yeah. just needs to have these set pieces where there are fantastical creatures or or just wonderful adventures right that's kind of where he's at his best and in fact when his yeah other than pan's labyrinth when his films pick up in the plot department like you said he almost always is going to choose to sacrifice um making that plot cohesive in order to maintain that fantastical element so i actually yeah. think the hobbit would have been perfect for him and it is a real shame before we move off of this can i read you some yeah. of the other movies that shape of water beat out for best picture Okay, here we go. This is not... Here you we know go. What, you, you ready? Want, well, Are you whatever. ready? Just do, just do it. Whatever. Yeah, sure. I'm going I'm to start with the one that's going to hurt you the most. Call Me By Your Name. Oh. oh. Next. Huh. Dunkirk. Next. Well, Get okay. Out. Yeah. Next. Mm. Lady Bird. Next. Phantom Thread. 
In wow, this was a really good year for movies. Huh? And Shape of Water won. Okay. Anyways, what was your history with this movie, John? <laughs> I want to reiterate, I did not say it should have won Best Picture. I just said it was actually a good movie. And if it hadn't won Best Picture, we would think of it like that. Is this the fastest our podcast has gone off the rails? It's It's got to be a record. It's pretty close. Okay. Pacific Rim. Um I love the hell out of this movie. Yeah. I this yeah. movie, and to be honest, slightly slightly different from you. Uh, I think I was in from the first trailer. I think I, I I've always loved. I did watch uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, I actually don't necessarily love it, but but I mean, I, I've been I, I've watched those kinds of animes and stuff, right? And uh, so I was pumped. Basically, from from as soon as I heard the premise, I was like, I'm in. You had me. I saw this movie four times in theaters twice Whoa. in a regular theater and twice in imax uh i don't know if imax still does the thing where they re-release old imax movies but if you haven't seen this movie in imax this is an incredible imax yeah movie. this yeah. is it, it's like it was made for this movie because the whole thing is is too is is meant is oversized and uh i am mike and i have talked before like like the way i approach a movie I, I want to approach it on its terms, right? So I don't, I, I don't grade, um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark the same way that I grade The Godfather because they're trying to, to do different things. And I think that's the name of the game with this movie because if you meet it halfway, if you accept a few things going into this movie about what it is decidedly not trying to be, yeah, yeah. then you're going to walk out and be like, that was an incredible viewing experience. Yeah. Uh, if you get hung up on... <laughs> on a few things that will definitely come up in this podcast. There are things you can get hung up on with this movie that are like, well, that may not be the strongest. And, um, but if you just ignore that, this is such a good movie. This is some of the most fun you'll ever have in a movie. And what I like about it, Mike, is it is dumb fun. This movie yeah. doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't really say that much. I think there might be a climate thing in there. Uh, there's some cool stuff with like the diversity of the cast. We'll talk about that. It's all great. This movie is not about any of that. This movie is about having giant robots fight giant alien or giant monsters in cities, and it looks so cool. And that's kind of the end. And if you're not there for the premise, then then you're probably not going to get the movie. But yeah, yeah, that's 100 percent true. I just love this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so and and I will say too, I hadn't necessarily rewatched it. Mike, when he rewatched it a couple weeks ago, texted me that there was some stuff that he maybe didn't remember not working so well. I think he did me a huge favor because I went into the rewatch with slightly lowered expectations and it completely blew me out of the water. I was like, I can't yeah. believe I forgot about this movie. <laughs> this is a perfect movie. I got, I have technically negative things to say, but like I was saying, taken on its own, I don't really have anything negative to say about this movie. I'm like, I don't know. It just kind of does exactly what it says it's going to do. Uh, and it's perfect at that. So, I don't know, do you have anything else on history, or do you want to just dive in? No, I think we should just get into it because you're wrong, and I can't wait okay. to tell you why. But I'm, I'm, I am perfect. I will die on the hill. That is Pacific Rim. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, let, let's let's get into it. All right. So the way this podcast works, we essentially have divided up how we talk about the movie into a couple of different sections. We're going to start by talking about why this movie works. Then we're going to have some thoughts, uh, probably not too many thoughts, on what holds this movie back. Right, Mike? I, I didn't have that much there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have and then we have stray thoughts. Mike and I have each prepared a couple stray thoughts. And then later on in the episodes, a uh, few essays that we have each prepared. But 
before all of that. Why does this movie work? Uh, we have two ways of proceeding. You can mm. let me cook for a few minutes and I can just kind of gush. Uh, or we can try to keep this a little more restrained and trade and have some thoughts either way. Which one would you prefer? Because I'm, I'm, down, I'm down for either. I think, I think I'll let you cook. I'm just going to let you go, John. Okay. Okay, Be free. I'm gonna take a second. I'm gonna take a second to just to clear just out. Give my. <laughs> I've been waiting to tell the world for uh, eight years now. This is a movie that knows what it wants to be. I guess I already said that. This movie knows what it wants to be and executes it so well. So let's just start with the biggest single thing. This is large scale action that you have never seen before, and I would say have never seen since. Maybe Godzilla 2016 kind of started getting into that territory, but everything feels so big. When This is what you dreamed of when you watched these movies or these TV shows and cartoons as a kid, that you're like, I just want to see giant things fighting each other, and this movie does that perfectly. It looks incredible. It is arguably, in my opinion, one of the best visual movies you will ever see. The design of everything is so well thought out and polished and beautiful. They, they, every from the Shatter Dome to the characters to the different uh, kaiju to the different Jaegers, it's just so well made. They put so much thought and effort into all of these details about the movie. I don't know. I, I could keep going, but I guess I am interested, Mike. So I'm talking now about you know the visual side of the movie, everything about it just visually hits so well and is so well made and looks so good. And they do all these little touches. I'm going to call out one thing real quick. So in all the action with the giant robots fighting giant monsters, right? Uh, they did this very cool thing, which I don't know if you know. They Obviously, it's essentially all CGI, but they would actually obey real, real world um, laws in regards to the camera. So this is something that the follow-up Pacific Rim Uprising, which I don't think we'll have much to say on because it's not a very good movie. I don't know. Have you ever have you even no, seen I've, it? No, I haven't seen any of the sequels. You don't have to. There's only one. It's not very good. Um, Pacific Rim Uprising did not or f- failed to do this. So think about like in the giant monster fights. If you had a camera do like a circle around the whole thing and do it very quick, uh, that camera would be moving faster than any physical object we make could move, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you did like a swivel, Pacific Rim Uprising does stuff like that. This movie does not. And actually, you could you could theoretically map out every single camera shot. And if those objects existed, which of course they don't, but if they did, the camera is never breaks the rules of physics in terms of what huh. it actually shows you. Stuff like that makes again, it's making large action feel large. It doesn't feel like. You know, you're watching an animation of two things, you know, two animation or like two guys in suits or whatever. It feels really, 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 really big. And it's so full of of just cool moments. So I guess to start with, Mike, just the visual design, the large scale action. I mean, that's what you're here for. And the movie delivers that. And in a sense, that's all it needs to do. It does other good stuff. But but what do you have in terms of that? Yeah, I actually, you know think you brought up Godzilla the the new Godzilla's I think that is a fantastic contrast for why this movie works because that movie is garbage and it's garbage because there's like no monster fights and there's a whole lot of exposition and there's a lot of like monologuing in that movie and 
and I think one of the things that'll come up and what didn't work is there is more exposition in this movie than I remembered. But sure. when this movie is at its best, it is that it gets what we want, which, like I said, is Gundam wing robots fighting monsters. And it commits yeah. to that so hard. And then this is where I think Del Toro's expertise really jump out, because not only does it commit to that, that desire of our hearts so deeply and gives us what we want, but he is so, 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 so creative when it comes to thinking of otherworldly design, right? Each yeah. of those monsters have awesome physical features that are actually so cleverly unique, right? Um, mm -hmm. Whether it's the one that's it's acid, I mean, the whatever Mach 5, I don't know what the num numerology yeah. is, but the one at the bottom, the super one, they're all they're all similar but different in these really creative ways. And one of the things that really like popped out to me this time is how he lights them. Like he really relies on neon yeah. coloring and it's super effective where either it's a lot eyes or it's a mouth or a tentacles like on the head. It's all popping like these bright colors in an yeah. otherwise dark setting, um, which I could also get into a really geeky thing about how. Another thing that Godzilla does poorly is it'll, it does action sequences at night, but it doesn't light them effectively. Think the last Game of yeah. Thrones finale. This movie actually lights those nighttime battles really well, where I always have a sense of what's going on while he still uses mm. the nighttime effect to make it a surprise when like one of the monsters jumps out of the ocean or whatever yeah. else. And all that leads to that's a lot of blustering to get basically get to this point. The battle sequences are seriously the sweetest thing ever in this movie. Yeah. They are why, they're, they're I, why you buy the ticket. Exactly. They are literally why CGI blockbusters exist. This is what they are for. The fight in the bay and in the city is so freaking cool. And it's like 15 minutes yeah. long. And that's awesome. That is so awesome. <laughs> like that a director... You know, insecure directors are going to be like, well, we have to find a way to keep it grounded in between. We're going to have to cut from the action. Nope, not Pacific Rim. Doesn't it's do like, it. sorry, yeah. now I'm kind of on a soapbox here. He just dives into it and he gives it to us, you know, and I love that. I just yeah. love that. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, seriously, the because uh, I know your response, but seriously, I think James Cameron is the only other director who understands that to this degree where it's yeah. like when he, he knows that there's a moment in the movie where it's like, they just want to see, they just want to have fun. They just want to see, you know, this play out in a really cool way. They want, we want to see the action. We want to see the big fight. We want to see the chase, whatever it is. And it's like, why, why beat around the bush? Just, yeah. just do it. And it is so weird in hindsight with this movie where I think like how many movies don't do that? Cause you're oh, right. Yeah. Like something like Godzilla something like where it's like, we got to add in all this extra stuff. And I'm like, why you don't need it. Pacific rib is right there. And it's showing you, you could just do the huge, amazing looking fight for like, it is. Cause you're right. There is a lot of exposition in this movie, but there is still like a real, a lot of the action. Like it's, yes. I think it's 30 or 40 minutes of action, yeah. which is actually a lot for a movie. That's so that where that costs so much. Oh my gosh. It just yeah. it's just so so satisfying to watch a movie know what it is good at and execute that so well. Well, and um it's really interesting yeah. before we move off of that cuz there is a balancing act that you see where it's not the only movie that just like commits to action that of this genre. But what you so often see is that when films do try to fully commit to action, they end up being unoriginal, right? They end up just being like, yeah. "Oh, let's make another Marvel action film or let's make another 
Godzilla movie that's exactly the same as the last Godzilla, but with a different monster. So what makes this film so successful is it navigates not falling into hyper seriousness, hyper exposition. And it also gives us something utterly original. And I think that's what makes this movie stand out in my memory as succeeding in this genre is that's actually harder to navigate than a lot of people think, especially if you're going to get the budget for something this big. It's not IP. It's not um, building and basically just bigger and more of a previous monster or film genre, right? It is an original work with original set pieces, with original backstory, original monsters, and it cuts to the chase. And I think you're not going to find another movie that does that. And it's so I, I I love everything you're saying right now. This is just music to my ears. And to to continue the the comparisons too, like you know, I think a, one of the best criticisms of the Marvel movies, and actually I'm so, kind of a defender. I really like the Marvel movies. Yeah, but me too. A pretty valid criticism is how often they get really lazy with, um, especially antagonist designs. Like until you get to Thanos, there's arguably no like compelling villain. But even aside from that, like if you think about how uh, how many times the bad guys army is like s- crazy generic space mon- or space aliens, yes, right? Yes. Who yes. just look like it, it, it's from any video game in the 2000s. And what I like about this movie is you just see how they put so so much creativity and effort into all of these design elements, right? The monsters are not generic. They are fascinating. They each look distinct and different and have all these different traits and stuff. The Jaegers don't look generic. They Even the ones that die in the first like five minutes after you meet them look so well thought out and have all these little details and have all these elements that you're like, someone put effort into that. Yeah. Someone wanted yeah. that to look like part of a lived-in world and every element of the movie does that and it's so refreshing it's this you know actually i just thought of one other comparison in a positive sense too this movie reminds me a little bit of dread as well right Mm, yeah where they're both very hyper focused put so much effort into the you know all of these elements that usually movies like that just kind of cheap out on or like well we don't need to care about making these things look unique or distinct or whatever. I think dread in this movie in Pacific Rim put a lot of effort into that. And that really shows. And I guess, I guess maybe like that is not as profitable as Marvel putting effort into characters over those elements. So, you know, who's to say, but I appreciate that this movie exists and that someone makes these kinds of movies, right? Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of stuff to talk about. I, the visuals were the biggest thing. I guess one last thing on the visuals. The practical effects actually are really good. People think of this movie as being just a CGI movie, a CGI fest. Um, and there is obviously a lot of CGI, even though it's worth noting it's incredibly good CGI. Like, it is really, really held up. This is eight years old, and some parts of it look better than movies I saw last year, right? Yeah, um, for sure. CGI, but... But the practical effects are really good, too. I love especially things like I love the suits. I love the pilot room. Um, allegedly, I don't know if this is kind of treading on stray thoughts, but I don't know if you know, Mike, those rooms were apparently really rough on the actors because most of the time you're seeing them getting thrown around and stuff. That was actually happening. Like they just made the sets <laughs> yes. like like throw them around and do all this stuff with them and sort of drown them and stuff like that. 
but it holds up. It looks amazing. All the, yeah. you know, so, so all that to say, it's not just the CGI, all the practical stuff too. It just looks so lived in and so real and, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, that's, do you have anything else on visual stuff? Cause I feel like we could talk about that a lot more. Um, no, I mean, I just think it's we, great. I just think it's great. It just it's looks amazing. Candy. It just yeah. looks amazing. Uh, so there is a plot to this movie and we're going to have a lot of things to say about it, but I want to start by talking about things that I like about the plot. Um, and, bef- and I think the biggest thing to talk about right from the get go is some of the characters and we're going to have positive and negative things to say, but there is a character in this movie named Marshall Pentecost, which is a great name. <laughs> and he is played by Idris Elba. And I don't know how that came to be i'm not sure i mean Andrew Elba makes interesting decisions so i guess he was in that's gonna but come up later Mike, yeah that's gonna come up later <laughs> uh, i wrote let's say every actor in this movie is is between three out of ten and eight out of ten okay yeah Idris Elba is 20 out of 10 in this uh-huh. movie yeah. yeah i don't know what movie he thinks he's in but it he's 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 playing this like it's an oscar bait movie oh it's great and every <laughs> single line delivery is literally the best thing I've ever seen. This is seriously one of my favorite performances ever. Uh, we're going to have a lot of quotes, and I actually have a little bit of a game to play with that. But before we get to that, just generally speaking, um, because I don't know if you have other actors you want to talk about. I don't, besides Charlie Day, maybe. Charlie Day is also very fun. But Idris Elba is so good at this movie. It is so fun to watch. It is just eating everything happening around him. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what's what's happening with this movie, but he is incredible in it. Do you have anything on that? Oh yeah. No, I just love Idris Elba. Like I love him in everything. I again I'm gonna probably bring up in straight thoughts just questions of how he picks the projects he picks. I don't really get it. <laughs> um but what is so amazing about this movie is if I if I scripted the words that come out of his mouth I think everything he says is stupid as hell, but okay. hot damn, do I buy it in the moment? <laughs> like, <laughs> when he's doing his little talk about all I need to be is a fixed point, I'm just like, okay, yeah, this guy's a leader. I'm in. <laughs> I'd follow you into the rift, you sure. Dude, let's do it. Let's get some robots. Like, I don't oh know. He is, he is as charismatic uh, of an actor as we have today, and I just yeah. uh, door him and you're right i don't know what movie he thinks he's in um (laughs) but and i also don't know how good his performance is i'm sorry i know it's good but it feels a lot better because of the people around him which we'll get into later (laughs) because there are just moments where i'm just like you are you are just out acting (laughs) everyone else here (laughs) by so much um yeah i i think other than him charlie day is great um Actually, he's going to come up in the next category, too. So I'll save some thoughts there. But he is great. He's really good in this. I think it's just odd that they pick. They ask him to play the same character from White Sunny. But anyways, we'll talk about that another time. Um, And I also always I always love Ron Perlman. He's ridiculous in this movie. He is a stupid character, like an objectively dumb (laughs) character. But he has just some great lines. And he is what I like about this is the characters that seem to be winking at the camera, knowing that they what movie they're in, which is largely Charlie Day and uh, Ron Perlman in my mind. 
they just yeah. breathe some levity and some light into this film that I think uh, adds a, some flavor to it that it wouldn't get otherwise. So those are the only other two this I would is, shout out. Yeah, and I completely agreement. I, th- I think they are also extremely fun to watch. And, and that's really what we're saying, right? Is like yeah. some of these characters are really fun to watch. Some of them are not, which we will get to. But some of these characters are really just fun to watch. And whether that's because Idris Elba is giving one of the best performances I've ever seen and one of the stupidest lines I've ever seen, (laughs) or because Charlie Day and Ron Perlman clearly know that they're in an unbelievably dumb movie and just having fun with it. In either case, it's like they're fun to watch, right? And you're there. Butterfly thing, but our butterfly knife thing with Ron Perlman. I'm like, what is happening? Like, (laughs) what is is he doing? He's like a a white guy playing a pimp in China selling kaiju parts. Like, what is happening? (laughs) It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, Okay, well, Mike, uh, in that spirit, I, I think. You know, I, I think maybe you would agree a lot of stuff in this episode is going to overlap between what works and what doesn't work, right? Um, yeah. So with that in mind, I had an idea because there's a lot of extremely memorable lines in this movie, right? A lot of them are memorable because they're, in my opinion, great lines. Some of them are memorable because they are utter trash. I selected 11 lines from this movie that I thought were particularly memorable. And Mike, what I want to do if you're game I just want to go through and read you each line and you tell me if you think this is memorable in a positive or a negative sense. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. So the first one I have comes from, uh, and this is going to come up a lot, comes from Marshall Pentecost and Drusselba. My man. Do not let my calm demeanor fool you, Ranger! One of my favorite lines of the movie. Mike, is that a good line or a bad line? That's an amazing line. It's a 10 out of 10 line. So there's, I realize now that there's a shortcut here. If it's from Idris Elba, it's probably an amazing line. That is in fact, (laughs) one of the best lines in the movie. The delivery by the way that he starts quiet and shouts at the end. Like I said, this is almost an Oscar bait performance. This is incredible. Um, I'd give him an Oscar. I have, I'd give him an Oscar for this. Second line is from Charlie Day. Now we both know that the kaiju are so large they need two brains to move around like a dinosaur. Mike, Mike, is that a good or a bad line? Is that memorably good or memorably bad? Every single line about <laughs> science in this movie is a bad line, John. <laughs> that is I a... think in the theater <laughs> when he said to a second brain like the dinosaurs, I think even, and, and I'm the perfect audience for this movie, I actively rolled my eyes. I actively was like, what, what, what did they just say? If you are a child and you watch this movie, please know dinosaurs do not have two brains. No, like Mike said, nothing scientific in this movie, nothing even vaguely scientific in this movie makes any sense. Let's keep rolling. Cause there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of these lines. Um, <laughs> all the Jaegers, they're, they're digital. Not all of them, Marshall. Gypsy's analog, nuclear. I can't stress. Well, wait, I'm sorry. Do you think that's a good or a bad line? I think you know my answer to that question. I can't stress enough how little analog or digital has to do with nuclear or not. I can't. It, that 
it, there's so many things wrong with that. Well, it's, like, it's insane. It's like later when Idris Elba is describing why he's about to die, and he's like, we didn't even think about a radiation blast shield. And you're like, what? <laughs> why not? <laughs> that never came up, huh? Uh, this was a classic, but we got to do it. Uh, this is again Idris Elba. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. I considered just ending with this line uh, because you already know. Mike, is this a good or a bad line? Um, This is both. This is a line <laughs> in which in the theater, I was like, this line is amazing. I The longer I say it out loud as a white man, it gets worse. I'm just going to be honest. Like yeah, when I if, read that line, it sounds dumb. But when Idris Elba yeah. reads that line, it sounds like the greatest speech you could ever give. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not it's not literature. Like if this was in the middle of Moby Dick, I'd have questions. <laughs> but given delivered full throated and I mean full throated by Idris Elba, he is sold. He is more sold out to this line than anything I've ever seen. Uh, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. So yeah. I'm saying that's a good line. That's I memorably good. To be clear, it uh, is a good line. <laughs> um, this is said it by uh, Raleigh Beckett to Michael Mori in the Jaeger at one point. Come on, let's do this together. Do you think that's a memorably good or a memorably bad line? Well, I have the exact line written in my "What doesn't work" section, so <laughs> gonna go. With it's bad. <laughs> There's going to be a bigger conversation. I'm realizing as I go through this how much this really just divides by who says the line for the most oh, part. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, that's yeah. going to come up. <laughs> but yes, I agree that is a memorably bad line. Uh, let's just keep the train going. I think this guy's dead, but let's check for a pulse. Okay. <sighs> No pulse. Um, is that a good or a bad line? I'm gonna zag on this one. That's a great line. That's like the meme holy, of holy, holy God! What are you talking that's about? That's the meme where the guy's like, "Someone call an ambulance, but not for me." <laughs> like that's exactly what that is. <laughs> What trash! It's I'm so, I'm ignoring your so tag. Bad. <laughs> that is one of the worst things I've ever heard in a movie. I'm, <laughs> have you seen? Have you ever seen Frisky Dingo? I. I uh, what was it? Frisky Dingo, the show before Archer. I I have not. There no. is definitely a line of that where one of the characters is like, he's been shot, and he's like, "Call me an ambulance," and the guy goes, "I'll call you hers. <laughs> this one's for Toby," and shoots him. And it's just like that's the kind of stuff. It's dumb. That is a bad line, but it makes me laugh yes. at how bad it is. Like <laughs> there are seventies films you know what? where that is a a line delivered with full seriousness and with complete I appreciate sincerity. It. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god. Um let's let's let let's let's shoot back to the other end of the spectrum. This is again from Marshall Pentecost. One. Don't you ever touch me again. Two. Don't you ever touch me again. <laughs> ten out of ten. That is, that is <laughs> ten an out incredible line. Ten out of ten. I wanna get that tat I wanna get that tattooed on me somewhere. Um 
Charlie Day again comes back. Oh my god. Oh my god. This isn't a refuge. This is a buffet. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? Is that great is that line? Or is great that line. I think that's good. I thought I put that solidly in the what works category. <laughs> um, this line comes from Mako Mori in Chinese. She says. <laughs> For my family, and then proceeds to stab the kaiju. Uh, Mike, is that a good or a bad line? That's it's bad. That you know why I put that in good. I'm not bad. I'm I'm, no. I'm standing by that one. No, nope. that I'm is out. the highlight of the entire movie. <laughs> I'm out with the with the with the freaking sword. Are you serious? It's, okay, they that's stab, not They fair. rip off the thing's wig. You literally were just like, hey, then there was this sweet scene where they killed a kaiju. <laughs> that has nothing to do with that line. <laughs> That line is what makes that ties the whole scene together. I won't hear anything negative against it. I only have one left. I can't say I saved the best for last, but I do love this line. Again, Charlie Day coming, bringing it home for us. Hey! Okay, guess who's back, you one-eyed bitch? You owe me a kaiju brain. (laughs) Is that a good... Is that a good... Is that a good or a bad line, Mike? Oh, it's There's a only one answer. There's it's only a one answer. It's what makes this that's film the tick. Be- that's arguably the best line what of the movie. What worked? Charlie Day delivering that line. That's the only answer. I saw in the Reddit comments for this movie, someone said Charlie Day is a national treasure. Absolutely. And I think that's the line they were thinking of. Absolutely. I think dude. that's what they were thinking of when they wrote the line. Oh, that was a, I, I appreciated that. Mike, thank you for going on that journey with me. What a We're trip. pretty close now to what doesn't work about this movie. Uh, so we should really just wrap up. Um, I'm just going to roll through one or two more. Yeah. What makes this movie work? Uh, no shoehorn love plot. Yes. I like that. Um, you just know there was some dumb executive who was like, why don't they kiss when they hug at the end? Uh, I really like that. This movie doesn't do that. And it seems like it's that would be a lazy, easy thing to do, and they don't. Uh, on a serious note, we hinted at it a couple times, but this movie has a pretty international cast, and that's super refreshing, actually. It was, yeah. It's mostly like it's it's you know it's it's people of color. It, there's uh, uh, just lots of different people in this movie. It's really, you would expect this to be like all white Americans, right? Yeah. And this movie isn't that, and that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Um, uh, the movie's high stakes, and, and Mike, you mentioned earlier that it's not like an IPE movie. Yeah. I think the best symbol of that, like this, there is a sequel, which doesn't need to exist. Again, it's bad. Don't watch it. This movie is self-contained, which I love. Also, this movie, again, I, I've talked a lot about stakes. In the first time that we see a real, or the, when we really get to the meat of the action about halfway through the movie, immediately they kill off two of the kai, or two of the yes. theaters, right? Yes. Out of four. And first of all, those deaths are grisly. Yes. That is rough. I forgot how rough that was watching, especially the Russians as they're drowning and getting, it's, it's like brutal. And again, that just wouldn't happen in an IP movie because they would be like, well, no, we got to tease this out. These things have backstories. We want them to play a part. But they just immediately set up these really cold designs and then they just get brutally murdered. Yeah. And you're like, okay, this is for real. This well, is not, they're not playing around with this movie. And not to get nerdy about it, but it actually creates a really interesting, jarring contrast where, you know, when they're inside those bubbles, 
inside and the design of that set, how you're talking about how it's moving and stuff, but it still keeps them largely set in place and it makes it feel very safe until it's not right. They're inside the whole of the ship and like, there's all sorts of action going on outside and their bodies are kind of locked into place, which makes it those scenes where the hole is punctured and they actually are like suddenly ripped out or like you said, they're drowning There's something very jarring about like, oh, this felt like the inside of a tank. And now it's just like, oh, no. And then they're dead. Right. And usually a pretty gnarly way. I actually think that's a good effect, too. It was really well thought through how they have that rupturing of their security in some way. Um, That was a little too nerdy way of saying it. But you feel it. You feel it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story function. The char- yeah. you're, you're connecting those characters, like you said, in that insular environment with the brutal reality of what's happening around. And, th- and so for the rest of the fights, your brain is in that place, even though that never really happens again. Yeah. Um, you're still in that mental place where you're like, at any moment, they could just be completely obliterated brutally. Uh, yeah, it's got real stakes, and, that's, and that really matters. The actual hand-to-hand fights are really good, too. I just yep. want to throw that out there. Yep. The one outside Marshall's office was actually really, really good. Um, That might be it. Let me see. Oh, there's just a lot of really good shots in this movie, and, and it's just not worth it in a podcast going through all of them. But the one I want to talk about, we've talked so much about how cool the kaiju are. When that Category 5 kaiju comes swimming out of the breach, I think you mentioned this already. Yeah. With the with the Jaegers in the background, the Jaegers look so cool and so powerful the whole time. And that thing comes out and just dwarfs them. Yeah. Just completely dwarfs them. And it's just such a cool moment. You're like, Oh my God, this is for real. This is hardcore. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just so this movie so understands setting up expectations and knowing how to present stuff to you in a way that has an impact. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an incredible movie. Uh, that's all I got. Do you have anything else for what makes this movie work? Um, I got a few quick ones. You know, it's yeah. at its best, like we already said, when it just glosses over exposition. And I actually think the opening sequence of the film is great at that. I mean, it, it's awesome. Yeah. Where it's just kind of like, hey, aliens came out of a Pacific Rim and smashed stuff. Let me show you. Right. And then it, yeah. it blends pretty seamlessly into, I actually think, a pretty effective imagining of the world that would pop up around something like that with the action figures, the celebrity pilots, you know, selling the monster parts. I actually think a lot of that, despite how silly it is at times is effectively done. It's an interesting world to inhabit, but what makes it good is it moves through that world, at least in the beginning so quickly to, you don't really think about it. Right. Um, And I think that's a really smart thing to do where if you both are brought into a fleshed out world, but it's kind of like, boom, 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 boom. Let's get to the action, Um, which makes none of it linger early on. So the opening sequence, I think, is just effective. Um, There's a couple like small little bits about the world. You know, I don't know if this is good, but the kaiju groupie idea was pretty on point of something that would happen. Um, (laughs) Just throwing that out there. I like the cities like built around the kaiju skeletons. I think that's just like got some really cool detail touches in this movie. Um, honestly, throwaway stuff that just makes it feel a little bit more lived in. And then I actually yeah. kind of I don't know if this is intelligent or not, but I actually kind of like the invasion backstory with the idea that they came during the dinosaurs but needed sure. us to terraform the planet by polluting it to death. I don't know. That was kind of fun. I like the idea that they send like the hounds to get vermin. I actually thought that was like the coolest yeah. reveal of the plot line. Um, I don't think it makes any sense, but it's cool. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's crazy, yeah. but it, but it is. You're right. It's a cool idea. Yeah, you're like, okay, I bet when you're watching the movie, you're in. Right? Yeah, it's later that you're like, huh? What? Huh? <laughs> why? Why wouldn't you just start the five? <laughs> what was anyway, that? um, that's a whole other thing. And then I, I also just, and you brought up stakes, but I greatly appreciate that this movie doesn't shy away from the destruction levels of the monsters, right? It is yeah. incredibly apocalyptic when it shows, like, entire cities being left in rubble. Um, I think there's a lot of movies that just try to shy away from that much carnage and damage to human life, and Del Toro's not having any of it. He's like, hey, millions of people are dying right now, because um, that's what would happen. Yeah. So, appreciate that. Appreciate the scale. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely alert for all of that. I have one more point for why this movie works, because it's a bridge into why this movie doesn't work. We've been saying this the whole time, but just to put it into words, this is seriously the best B, but B movie ever made, right? This is a B movie. And we have said yes. that before. We've said that with yeah. stuff like, like uh, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. We've said that, you know, you could say that with a lot of movies, but this one I think is the best candidate in the good and negative sense. So we've been talking so much about the good sense. But let's talk about the negative sense a little bit. Yeah. Why this movie doesn't work. First thing, this is the best-looking B-movie ever made. This is a B-movie. This yes. is not... There are a lot of things in this movie that just don't really make sense and that just don't really... and that are just kind of over-the-top stupid. And most of the time, you can buy that. And like, like I said, if you meet it halfway, it's fine. But every now and then you're like, mm, no, that's just stupid. And that's just really dumb and doesn't really pull me in at all. Um, I don't even know if we necessarily need to name examples. I'm sure you have some, but uh, that's kind of the biggest thing, I think, is it's just it just is a dumb movie. And it yeah. knows that, but it doesn't stop the fact that it is also really dumb. And there's a lot of stuff that you're like, mm, okay, I don't know about that. Um that is not, though, my biggest reason why this movie doesn't work. Uh, and I, I'm sure you have thoughts on that, but if it's okay, I want to pivot yeah, real quick on. to what I think is the single biggest problem with this movie. Uh, and I was actually thinking about this with Avatar, which Avatar, I think, is a much better movie and is a good movie, despite what Mike will say. But <laughs> I think that they both have a very similar problem. The main character is incredibly uncharismatic. Yeah. And I think that's just yep. it. Like the, the more I thought about it, I was just like, you know, there's a universe where like, like you think back, you think about things like Independence Day. You think about things like, um, you know, even actually, frankly, uh, 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 Indiana Jones movies and, and a lot of dumb action movies, Schwarzenegger movies that we love over the especially 70s, and 80s um, are really stupid movies that are grounded by a lead performance that's insanely charismatic. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And we've been talking about uh, Idris Elba is incredibly charismatic, but he's not the lead. We spend most of our time with Raleigh Beckett, who is just not that charismatic of an actor. And I think that is the single thing that holds this movie back. This would be an all-time classic, I think. This would be an Independence Day level classic movie if the main performance was just like intoxicatingly fun and charismatic but it's just not and as much as i love avatar that's a very similar problem avatar's yeah. main character not that charismatic and you just and that just that just covers such a multitude of sins right there's just so many things that that makes watchable if your person is just like you're just in and uh yeah i don't know there's not that much to say i feel bad for the guy i don't even i didn't even look up his name but i'm sure he's a great actor but 
in this movie, you're just like, every time I'm with him, I'm like, can we get back to the big monsters and or Idris Elba? And <laughs> that's all I want. So I, I don't know. What Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, it's funny you brought up Independence Day. That was the number one thing I put down was you can tell that this movie's casting was by far the cheapest part of its budget um, where they sure. just, they did not spend up for anyone but Idris Elba, which again, based on the projects they picks, I'm not sure that you have to spend up for Idris Elba. I don't really get yeah. his career arc, but there's just like a lot of cheap choices made into the main characters and and i think it loses a great deal i would i mean i would say it's a pretty when i was talking about things that i don't remember um being as bad as they are from the first time i saw it this is one of them like the acting was distracting at times it is bad it is yeah and and i i wrote independence day because i was like this movie would have been next level if you have will smith in the lead role yeah period if you have jeff goldblum and will smith add so much to that movie and and that's actually a perfect comparison because you have the president character in independence day who gives his speech and he's great as a side character Mm. but what is missing from this movie is something someone that draws my attention when they're on the screen who's in the majority of the film and that's what's so great about will smith and jeff goldblum in that movie you can have your inspiring speech you can have your cheesy lines but it's glossed over by the fact that i you have something magnetic at its core this does not have it it just doesn't and 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 to be clear that guy is uh oh what's his name he's from sons of anarchy uh anarchy charlie hunnam i think his name is um and and that's the second part i would say about the cast is they they make a really odd choice with his character and charlie day where they take people who play well-known roles in these like actually kind of big projects at the time because sons of anarchy wasn't a small show and obviously yeah. always sunny was a big show and they have them play almost the exact same character just out of their context and it's distracting mm. at times so that's another weird thing where i'm just like it is hard for me not to just be like that's charlie from always sunny playing charlie and yeah. always sunny and i don't know why that's a i don't even know if it's a problem it just distracted me more than it probably should have for i noticed a bit that part. yeah I, I noticed that with Charlie Day. I honestly haven't seen Sons of, Sons of Anarchy, so I didn't have that connection. Um, but that's interesting to hear, actually. I didn't. I, I'm not sure if I would have guessed that. But that. So you. So both of those characters are are doing that, is what you're saying? Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. I know Charlie Day is. That is, you know, basically if you took Charlie from Sunny and made him smart, it's like okay, we're we're there. Yeah. Um, and and the character yeah, in, in Sons of Anarchy, he doesn't have to be charismatic. He kind of plays the. I want to get out, but I keep getting dragged back in. And in that show, it's not a big loss that he's not super charismatic because he's like a gun running biker. Yeah. It's just not what they're asking him to do is to carry a magnetic weight. He's more of an anti-hero, And quite frankly, he just doesn't need to be very appealing. And that's the, ex- yeah. it's almost, it feels like a miscalculation because what is obviously happening when this film comes out is this is that guy's attempt to break onto, onto the big screen. And it just feels yeah. like they fundamentally misunderstand why he was successful at Sons of Anarchy because it does not fit this mm. role. And he obviously, interesting. God bless him, he does not have the depth of acting to change what he does, right? He is playing yeah. the same yeah. character in a lot of ways. And it just doesn't fit. I don't know. It's a weird choice. It doesn't fit. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a gaping void in the middle of the movie. Yeah. And as much as I have said over and over that I love this movie and I will be talking about how amazing it is for the next, you know, 60 years. 
I still I, I do acknowledge that I'm like, yeah, this would have been an all time classic movie if it just had something grounding in the center of it. Someone you wanted like you said, you want to watch. You just don't want to watch this guy. And you're just like, okay. So yeah. you know, I'm not there. That's the single biggest thing. The only other real things I have are actually mostly my stray thoughts because there are so many small dumb things that they don't necessarily fit in what doesn't work. Um so yeah, I don't know, Mike, what do you have? I, I'm sure you have more for yeah. what doesn't work about this movie. I only have one other, well, I have one other major one and then one that I'm not sure is a what didn't work and then a couple small things. So the the one I, I'll just throw away because I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that it doesn't work, but it's just worth noting. This movie definitely loses something on a small screen. You talked about how this is like a perfect yeah. IMAX movie. You can't ignore the fact that it's just not as good on a laptop. Um, which isn't a criticism. It was made for IMAX. It was made for the big screen, but you you lose a little bit of the luster of it. Um, At least I did that again. That is not really a, what didn't work. That's just going to happen. Dunkirk is the same way. And I think Dunkirk is a masterpiece, right? So yeah, we can't hammer it over that. Um, I think the only other major one I have is that it is almost definitively too long. Um, yeah, I, I just I actually had that in my stray thoughts for some reason, but yeah, 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 I, it just doesn't need to be over two hours long. I forgot it was. I thought this was like a clean ninety-minute movie, and I did too. That's almost, exactly what I wrote. I wrote. I wrote. Why is this not a one-hour thirty movie? It just feels like it's an in-and-out movie, but it's really not. It's, yeah, it's long. You got to watch it. And that was the other hard part is that what I when I texted you and I was like, it's not as good as I remember. What I really was thinking about was one, like I said, the acting is rough, but two, it's actually that there's just more exposition than I remembered. I remember this movie having almost no explanation of what was going on. And I love that in my memory of it. And there's just like a number of times with like Charlie Day's character where they're actually like explaining the science of something. And I'm just like, I don't need any of this. It doesn't sound cool. It sounds stupid as hell. And it's not what I came here for. Um, it does. It still does better on that front than any other monster movie I can remember in recent me- memory. Sure. So yeah, I don't. I do not want to be too critical of that, but I do want to be critical of the fact that because of that excess fat, it is just too long. It's too long of a movie. Yeah. You know what? What I would say is, um, if other monster movies are. 90 minutes and the ratio is like let's say four exposition to one action this movie is two and a half hours or two over two hours and the ratio is more like three exposition to two action or maybe even yeah one to one right and it's like part of you is like okay well that's way better right that's a step in the right direction but then you think, man, but that's, does that mean that they could have made the movie 90 minutes and have it three to two action to exposition? I think right? so, dude. Or I really do. And that would have yeah. been a really good movie. If it it would have been great. If it literally <laughs> was just almost entirely the action, you would have been like, well, what's wrong? Like, literally, there's just nothing to change. This is yeah. perfect. So I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else you got? Uh, just last ones. I mean, like I, I told you in the last section, I wrote the come on, let's do this together. <laughs> um and that just to say the script is atrocious at times <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't really matter that goes into your b movie thing i'm i'm not gonna be super critical about that because it is a glorified B movie. 
but it's, it's not good. The charisma thing because if yeah. a dumb line delivered by Edris Elba becomes a very fun line, yeah, a dumb line delivered by our main character becomes a dumb line. And you're 100%. like, okay, well, that was stupid. Yeah. I wrote below that. I don't think a single emotional beat landed in this movie for me. Um, <laughs> so I don't. That, again, don't think that's really I actually, critical. But <laughs> I don't agree. I have one, and this was in my stray thoughts, so I'm going to mention it here. There's exactly one, and to be fair, you need external context because I saw an interview um, that I was like making of the movie, and one of the two Australian—it's it's either the dad or the son of the Australian team. The actor is talking about how they developed with Del Toro this interesting idea where the dog was how they showed affection to each other. They show affection to the dog because they don't know how to show affection to each other. So that makes that scene where they're trying to say goodbye and he knows he's going to die and he can't, and they can't seem to talk to each other. And finally the son just kneels down to the dog and gives him a huge hug and says, I'm going to miss you. That kind of lands. And again, I needed the context of that to help it. But that's good. I think that beats Leia. That's good. Okay. Wow, Mike. Wow. Wow. Nothing. Nothing. No. Not even like a. Oh my God! You're 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 heartless. That's a great moment. But, yeah. And then and then he says and then he says to him he says what well, he says Pentecost. That's my son. You've got there. So or something like that. I don't remember. So it's a great line. I had this in straight thoughts, but so the son dies, right? Yeah, obviously. So when they stop the kaiju, the dad sure gets over that pretty quick. And he's like the first person <laughs> to be like, we did it. Purpose. I'm just he's, saying he's, he's he doesn't miss him that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that's like going at the end of Independence Day and being like, wow, guys, a lot of people died here. Why are you? No, all no, celebrating? it's not it's like, like that because Who cares? It's, it's his child. It's very different than that. If your child it's, just it's died, the, his child, but, his, but for a good purpose. And he already had worked through those emotions because he knew he was going to die anyways. You're wrong. You're oh, no, some others got to survive. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so <laughs> the, none of the beats landed for me. That's all I'm saying. There is a couple nitpicky things like the CGI sequence with the narrow handshake felt like they mailed it in. It's not a very cool looking sequence yeah. compared to the rest of the film. It also doesn't need to felt, be. I don't know if this will land. Felt very 90s in a weird way. Yeah, they did. Like, you know, uh, those 100%. like weird, like tint, tinted shot with all the all the quick cuts and stuff. I yeah, like, yeah. It was a weird. It, it just didn't land. It wasn't. They they seem to mail it in on that, but that's fine. Um, and then the last one I had was the ge- film's general worldview, which is essentially politicians don't get it done. The military should step in and fix everything. Um in sure. 2021, I just don't know if I like it. Um, it's just not your also, favorite position. Also, uh, going into the dark web with Russians to bypass government inefficiency and get stuff done. <laughs> just a couple themes that I was like, hmm, I don't know if that lands today. <laughs> God, I, I, I want to say that you're reaching, but I'm not sure if you are. I feel like I, I didn't even notice all of that. That's a little weird, huh? Might be more of a straight I will thought. Say, though, but... I will say, though, great decision. Um putting out Idris Elba into a suit and tie rather than a military uniform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is, that is seriously, that gets back to the design stuff where it's like, yeah, Yeah. they, they know what makes this movie look a lot cooler. So I'm in, I'm with it. Okay. That's all I got. We're going to have a few stray thoughts here. Oh my um, lord! Actually, this might be the most. Having I've ever said had. that, I don't have that. Oh, I oh, got really? I don't yeah. actually have that many once I said it. Cause I realized I've, I've used up a lot of mine. So I don't know. 
we're gonna just go mike and i have each have straight thoughts we're gonna go back and forth i have a feeling i'm gonna run through mine much faster than mike so we will see what happens um okay i'm just gonna go is that fine yeah let's roll mike if you were designing a jaeger why would you put the pilots in the freaking head that does not make sense. <laughs> Put them literally anywhere else. Put them in the center. Like, why would you do that? You don't have to make it like that. That's so insanely stupid, and I don't understand it. Okay, I need to get that. I've had that one in for eight years. Where I, from the first time I saw the movie, I'm like, but why? Why yeah. would they be in the head? That doesn't I mean, make sense. John, if you were designing a Jaeger, would you not consider a radiation blast shield? <laughs> I don't know. These engineers are idiots, John. That's why. <laughs> I also have serious okay. questions about why you would give it two legs and still make it really unstable. But that's a whole other thing, too. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. The design of the Jaeger is something I'm just not going to question because I have that's thoughts. a fair point. <laughs> also, why don't they all have swords? Because like the moment he whips out the sword, it's the most efficient tool there is at killing the things. I'm like, what is going on? He just, like, cuts it in half, like, very easily. <laughs> like, that would have been super useful a really long time ago. I was like, what the There's hell? a lot of people you, who died in the interim period because you, you didn't kill the thing dumb plasma them. cannons that don't do anything? Oh, far as I you know tell. what? You know what? This is more conversational than we've done Straight Thoughts before. But, Mike, there is a fan theory for why that is true. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, go. That's actually, I'm going to say, not that bad. Um, okay. The theory is kaiju blood oh. is toxic. They, they say that over and over again. So apparently, like, the, the fan thing is, like, they tr the, the sword is only ever a last resort because it obviously spills so much blood everywhere. And oh. that is harmful to the environment. That makes so sense. Look at that. That makes sense. See, you're Hayden on Del Toro. I he's was kind of. He's, he's always ready. I kind of answer for everything. My my real response was I kind of had assumed it was because they evolved them to like defend themselves better against the things oh, that, that the humans do too. consistently. Yeah. But actually, that answer makes way more sense. That's a great theory. So there you go. Yeah. Um. There you go. Problem solved. This ahead. is more of just a a general observation, and I've said this before, but the I was out and you dragged me back in plot lines just get me. They're like crack. <laughs> it's crack cocaine. I just need them. That's all I got. <laughs> you're, you're, you're just always, that plot line always lands for you is what it, you're saying. That and revenge movies just get me every time. I don't, I really don't know why, which is why John Wick's the best movie ever made because it's both. <laughs> Jeez, God almighty. Okay. Um, this is a really small one, even yeah. for straight thoughts. This is all near future, right? Um, at the beginning montage, when they're, they're talking about the Jaeger program, they have footage of like a pilot who's trying to pilot a Jaeger by himself and his nose starts bleeding and stuff. The footage is like old black and white yeah, footage. I saw that. This yeah. is like, yeah, this is near future. What, what, what they have, what they have cell phones or something like they, no, no one has ever recorded an old like film stock black and white for anything <laughs> in 40 years. Like what? That's it's just a so silent confusing. movie. It's a small point. <laughs> it's a small point, but I was just like, why is this happening? It's got like okay, the little right. like uh the lines in the film when you had to like hand move the projector, you know, really fast and has yeah. like the <laughs> it's like a guy on a piano giving it the soundtrack. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's like that. It's crazy. Okay, what do you got? So let's talk about the world coming together to fight the monsters. Um, this is another part of the movie that has not aged well in 2021 
because we know this would not happen. So the question no. is, like, how how quickly would it take 50% of our population to doubt whether the monsters were even real and then start passing along four-hour YouTube videos proving why they're not real? Oh, no, Mike. <laughs> what have you done? What have you done to our, to our co, you know, homey little podcast? We're not out here to make enemies, are we? I'm, Come I'm, on. Just, I'm just asking questions, John. I'm just asking questions. It is ironic for me to say that, given in the past I've explicitly said comments about Republicans. So maybe maybe I'm I'm a little hypocritical here. I can live with that. No comment, Mike. No comment. I mean, are um, they even real? Sounds like the government's trying to overreach. Anyway, I'm done. Do you Go. know anyone who's actually been killed by a kaiju? <laughs> Oh, we have to move on. I'm, I'm, I'm sad fault. now. I'm depressed. Oh boy. Okay. Well, here we go. Uh, Stretches our imagination. But go on. Go on. Um, we talked a lot about lack of char- the, the lack of charismatic actors in this movie. It led to a bigger question in my mind: Has the 20th century been missing out on handsome, charismatic action stars? Because, like, the most like because I was trying to think like, well, who should they have gotten, right? Yeah. And I was like, God, I don't know, because there's people like like Daniel Craig, but I, I A, they couldn't have afforded him, and B, like I I don't even know if he's quite that same. I'm I'm thinking again, Will Chris, Smith, Chris Harrison Evans? Ford, Schwarzenegger, Chris Evans, maybe, I guess, is the closest yeah. we're gonna get. Um Chris Hemsworth maybe is the closest we're gonna get. I, I would have preferred either of them. I guess that's a good answer. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth, yeah. Chris Evans. I would have preferred them, but even then like, you know, I can't emphasize enough all of these movies, again, Schwarzenegger, Harrison Ford, Will Smith, made bad movies amazing movies. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if either of the Chris's get us there. You know what I mean? Yeah. What if you put Ron so, Perlman in that role? We did it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Let's call this let's call Guillermo. Oh, Remake no. the movie. Ron Perlman's every character. I agree with you. CGI. I really do. And I actually wonder, too, if you put, like, a smart Alec in that role, like a Tom Holland or something, if the movie's not better. Just change the tone of the character. All I know is what they did doesn't work. So that's really all I can say. Um, I think you're right, though. That's the other thing is, like, just ditch the, like, the, like, you know, straight up. Because he's trying to just be, like, straightforward charisma. Like, he's just a nice guy who's good at everything and whatever. And it's just like, uh, it's just not working. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, What do you what do you got? Uh, so let's just do this now. What drives Idris Elba's acting career? Like, what? how does he pick the projects that he picks? And is he just trying to be the most overqualified actor in every bad movie he's in? I, I, don't, I don't understand how someone who seems so classically trained and, like, so serious about it's acting... so good, yeah. ...picks the movies he picked. I just... He's just did the Suicide Squad. Like, I don't know what he's doing. Like, how does he pick Can his we, If it's okay, uh, I have pulled up Idris Elba filmography. Yeah. Let's, let's make a quick shout-out in terms of uh, television. Yeah. That, of course, Luther he is Stringer Bell on The Wire. And uh, Luther. Oh, man. I, yeah, Luther I forgot about rules. that. Luther's yeah. incredible. Scared the hell out of me. Yeah. When I was a kid and I watched Luther, there's a shot... Uh, where there's a lady who comes home and kind of thinks someone may be home and looks around but doesn't see oh, yeah. and lays down. Yep. Do you know that the overhead yep. shot where the serial killer comes out from beneath her bed? Yep. That that shit scared me. 
Yep. So much yep. as a kid. Oh my god, I'm not even sure why I was watching that show as a as a. I don't kid, either. That's a dark anyway, show. Shout out to, shout out to um, that and The Wire. Obviously amazing. But but here's a selected filmography. Thor, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, <laughs> Prometheus, Pacific Rim, Thor: The Dark World, Mandela. Oh, Mandela is a good movie. Mandela: Log Walk to Freedom. Avengers Age of Ultron, Zootopia, The Jungle Book, Finding Dory, Dark Tower, which I didn't see, but I heard was a huge disappointment, uh, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War, and then The Suicide Squad. It's so strange. What? Oh, don't forget, don't forget Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. I'm not sure how I could forget that, Mike, but yes, Fast <laughs> and Furious presents... <laughs> And because and you know because the problem is he feels more like a Liam Neeson. He feels like Liam Neeson if Liam Neeson didn't have the dramatic part of this early career. Yeah. Yes. Or actually, now I think about it, maybe he is Liam Neeson, but that dramatic part was all on television, right? Maybe, so like you take yeah. Liam Neeson's dramatic movies and Idris Elba's television roles, and both of them did that, and then transitioned into I'm just gonna make dumb movies and have and apparently have a lot of fun. But you're right; it just seems like he should be a lot bigger or i guess in much better movies than he's in speaking of which i wrote because i don't know if you heard so this is my next point um and it's related because i don't know if you heard that there was a huge campaign at one point to make idris elba the next james bond and apparently uh it's like it's not clear if he says that he was never interested in that just because he was never offered and he wants to save face. Yeah. But he claims he was never interested in that. He's like, he's like, no, nah, I never even would have considered that. I'm too old. It never would have worked. But man, Mike, there's an alternate universe where Idris Elba became James Bond and they're laughing at us right now. We, we are in the darkest timeline compared to that because that would have been, as much as I love Daniel Craig, if, if Idris Elba took over as James Bond, oh my God, that'd just be amazing. Yeah, it'd be amazing. And I don't, I really don't know if he just doesn't want it or if he's man, or if it is that he can't get it. You know, he's taken some shots at things like beast of no nation, which is an incredibly dark sadistic movie. And I do not. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's he's good in it, but that's not a movie I'd recommend to anybody. Um, (laughs) But so it's just weird. It's like an all or nothing proposition. I, I don't know. I don't know. And now he just seems to be tagging on to franchises. So it might be a choice on his part. I I really couldn't tell you. I do know that the world is racist enough that he would not get James Bond because we live in a hateful, horrible place that doesn't give us what we want, but it would rule. So yeah, it'd be incredible. It'd be, I, I still, I'm still hoping maybe they do an old James Bond. I don't know. Never forget that people flipped out for James Bond being blonde. So yeah, Let's just oh, man. No, I'm sad. Just remember All that your we points live, are sad, Mike, and your straight thoughts. We live in there a hellhole. I wish the kaiju would eat us. Okay, moving on. <laughs> is it my turn? Yeah, it's your turn. Um, is you know, is is Pentecost good at his job in this movie? Because let's just how dare you? Let's just sit how, with the what, fact that he says I, I won't hear this blasphemy. Listen, what, how could it be bad? Let's just sit with the fact that he sends two scientists to the black market dealer on their own with the only hope of figuring out what's going on. And I just have concerns. That's all I'm saying. 
There's nothing says, about Charlie Day's it's character. It's not like the old days. We don't have the same funding anymore. That's his research <laughs> so team. He That's what he's got, send, Mike. He doesn't send a soldier with them? Some bodyguards? There's not that many soldiers. What, Everyone's what got about, a role. Actually, there's a lot of people standing around in that movie. That's not true. Nah, they're doing stuff, probably. <laughs> Apparently, there's there's people who can do kung fu just lying around all over the place. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, all I got. <laughs> I have... Oh, yeah, I just have a couple more points. Uh, I'm pretty proud of this one. If this movie was made 30 years ago, Charlie's Day's character would have been played by Rick Moranis. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> right? I like that. Right? Yeah, that's good. And, and you know what? Would have been a great role. He would have, he would have killed it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so is there actually a good reason why the Jaegers have pilots? Um, um, <laughs> okay. The style, yeah. The, all the, I the, need. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> Man, why don't they just pilot them remotely? Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't. I was like, is there? I couldn't pick up in the movie. But whatever. <laughs> I don't think the movie addresses that. To be honest <laughs> with you. Um, okay, Mike. I only have two more points. Um, I just want to read to you all of the Jaeger names because they're incredible. I love them so much. Here we go. Cherno Alpha. That's the Russian one. <laughs> That was the worst for some reason. <laughs> Crimson Typhoon. Ooh. Striker Eureka. Okay, no, that And then, was of the course, <laughs> that Striker Eureka is amazing. Get out of here. And then, of course, the best, and also the best design. I just want to say one for, I just want to take one brief second that Gypsy Danger is both such a good name. That's a good name. And such a cool looking robot. Yeah, that's nice. I just can't, it, they just, it, it's just there's more creativity and awesomeness in that one design than anything designed in any recent Marvel movie. I'm gonna say it, Mike. Yeah, I'm with I'm, you. I'm, I'm gonna say it. Oh my god, I love this movie. Okay, uh, what's what you got? Um, I want an entire movie about the boat in the beginning, just like the perfect <laughs> storm with Marky Mark Wahlberg, where the boat runs into a kaiju instead of a hurricane. Like, come on. Tell me that I'd the perfect storm wouldn't be better if they catch all those fish and they're like going home and they're all ecstatic and then there's just like a sea monster and they're like, oh no! And Mike, that's what gets them. When you're right, <laughs> when you're right, you're right, buddy. I, yeah. I, I got I got no negative things to say about that. I'd watch the hell out of that. Better this sequel. This is my last point. <laughs> better sequel. This is my last point. Um, Striker, Striker Eureka, the Australian one, has yeah. those missiles in its chest right uh do the pilots really need to scream while they're charging those up no i'm just curious no i just want to know because they do ah, there it goes is that necessary is that it's part not. of the programming did someone build that into the design of the Jaeger? Oh, i just now there's a good idea <laughs> i just need to know i just have questions is what i'm saying i have a lot of questions uh, about the jaeger design generally but i feel sure. like we've covered that enough so well i'm out of that's my stray thoughts uh just you just cook for a second just, yeah. just go what do you got um the idea of being neuralink to someone who dies is like super jacked up so yeah that's all i got there's a black mirror episode about that that covers that pretty astutely um there's because, a uh, the TV tropes TV tropes uh, has like nightmare fuel is a category for each movie yeah. and the nightmare fuel section for this is like 
pretty extensive because they're like, just really consider that you are completely inhabiting someone as they feel death wrap around them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just it's it's horrifying. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Right, like wait. I said, there is a full Black Mirror episode about that. So go check that yeah. out if you want to see that get deranged real quick. Um, the Coastal Wall product project is incredibly stupid. Um, and I don't even understand how in a fictional world that's even a plan. Like, obviously the plan fails immediately because, duh, it's just a wall and these are giant monsters. And I don't know why anyone is surprised. It's just stupid. Um, also, the Jaegers... It's funny you say that doesn't... Oh, go ahead. So, also, the Jaegers are made with this, like, super advanced technology. But when it goes to him working on the wall, it's like a 1950 skyscraper <laughs> project. And you're like, what am I watching? What is happening? How did this happen? <laughs> um, it's funny you say that, because I was going to say the wall is maybe one of the most realistic parts about the movie. Well, that's just because when, we live in when, 2021, okay? <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> that's exactly what they would do, is be like, I don't know, let's just make a stupid wall. Build I guess. the wall. Oh. Build the Anyway, I'm oh. done. Okay. Well, it's almost like we never get past stupid ideas in America. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure Charlie from Always Sunny has been typecast for me on the level of Mark Hamill. And that's tragic. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think fine. he's just Charlie from Always Sunny now. God, I love that show. Um, the fact that every pair of pilots plays a cliche of their nationality is kind of weird. <laughs> that's all I had. To, just read it word for word. See, I, I, I don't, I I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I still think that's better than simply not having anyone of any other. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you're not wrong. Especially, I think the Russians are particularly egregious because they, they just look like they've, I don't even know. They look like, like members of the Russian mafia or something. Duh. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know about that, but okay. Yeah. This is a small one. Uh, Idris Elba, he has his first nosebleed, and it starts with the blood dripping on his shoes, but none of it's on his shirt. Is that physically possible? That's not how noses work. <laughs> just, just, just a thing I, I noticed. Um, and then the last one. Why does it take them this long to realize that the kaiju are clones? Because it feels like that would have been obvious if they had studied them at all. The, yeah, no, there's there's a lot. So so this movie goes to great lengths to keep all of the action very in a very contained space, which I actually appreciate. I think works for the movie. But that does mean that you have characters finding things out, like especially the scientists, that you think, wouldn't there be like a lot of scientists on this? Wouldn't there be a lot of people looking into this? And wouldn't they have realized all of this before? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have questions. I have questions. I I, I agree. Uh, cool. You, you you good? You said that's all I got. Okay. Well, stick around after the break. We're gonna get into some essays Mike and I have each prepared. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, for the next part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay trying to dive a little deeper into some aspect of the movie. Uh, and then we'll just kind of discuss a little bit about those points. Um, Mike, I think I'm going first, if that's okay. That is correct. Sounds good. Let's do it together, John. Okay. Okay. I'm out. I quit. <laughs> I'm done. 
like a lot of things in Pacific Rim, the whole Jaeger co-pilot thing doesn't necessarily make that much sense. Relatedly, the drift, the mental space that co-pilots kind of share, is only ever murkily defined, despite it being a key plot point in the film. But like a lot of great science fiction, leaving details of the concept up to the viewer's imaginations is actually a really smart way to approach the whole thing, rather than let the plot get mired in boring and meaningless philosophizing that doesn't really affect anything, the movie sort of hand waves all of that and just kind of keeps the pace up. The upshot is that long after the credits rolled, I've still found myself returning to the idea of drifting, of mind sharing and compatibility and bringing things into the drift. The movie uses spare comments about the drift to kind of tease at the bigger idea of what it is. Characters talk about finding those that they've lost in the drift. They talk about feeling another person's fear and dread. They talk about being in each other's minds and chasing the rabbit, stuff like that. Having said all of that, though, the phrase that I keep returning to, the comment that I find so intriguing, comes from Marshall Pentecost from Idris Elba and is given almost offhand. When Chuck, who's the younger Australian pilot, asks how Pentecost plans to be his co-pilot, Pentecost responds, I carry nothing into the drift. No memories, no fear, no rank. I carry nothing into the drift. The thing I find so intriguing about that quote is that it explodes the idea of what drift compatibility is, of what it means. I think for most of the movie, I had the impression that it was a combination of personality traits, outlook, disposition, and fighting style, stuff that you can consider maybe superficial characteristics of one's identity. But this quote brings forward the idea that drift compatibility is rooted in psychology, in the mental and emotional burdens and mechanisms and strategies that come to dominate how we live our lives. And all of this makes me think about relationships, not just romantic, but platonic and familial relationships, just just any social connection that we seek out in our life. Because in essence, I think what we look for in relationships is compatibility. We gravitate towards people around whom we feel comfortable, despite or even because of all of our psychological history and all of our emotional baggage. And I think a lot of us, like the characters in this movie, are prone to seeking out people whose trauma and burdens and fears kind of complement our own, either that we can make up for each other's shortcomings or that we've experienced and can understand those shortcomings. Not that this is a perfect or a clean process. It's usually kind of messy and complicated, especially because we so often struggle to be aware of our own deficiencies and hangups. And in a sense, I think that's what Marshall Pentecost in this movie is embodying, the spiritual idea of total self-awareness, which is also the same thing as total presence. He knows himself completely. He knows the things he's done and had done to him, his traumas, his accomplishments, and none of those things exercise an unhealthy grip on his psyche. He can dive deep into his own mind without being afraid of what demons are going to pop up. And the result is that he is compatible with anyone. That is, if they are stable enough with their own mind, he can meet them there. To be clear, I'm not advocating for this as like a goal. I think all of us have our baggage and probably benefit from finding relationships that complement those things that we carry around. 
But having said that, I think there is still something spiritually valuable here. There is something fascinating about this because part of drift compatibility involves your mastery of yourself. As we see the first time Mako Mori is in a Jaeger, unexamined or unresolved trauma can quickly become overwhelming once in the drift. Again, like relationships in general, the intimacy is what brings up so many parts of ourselves that we'd have preferred to leave behind. Marshall Pentecost's ability to drift with anyone may not have an analog in being compatible with anyone you meet, but it does illustrate how our willingness to engage in difficult acts of self-examination and self-understanding removes obstacles to close relationships. Mike and I have been talking recently as I've begun the process of seeing a therapist in my own life about the ways that there's these things that we don't even know exist from our past, that you could have lived your entire life without realizing you did. Whether or not that's patterns or traumas or behaviors, it's incredible the amount of things about yourself that you don't even know until you go through the process of looking for it and processing it and examining it and ultimately understanding it and understanding yourself. Spirituality might actually be described as the process by which we remove barriers between our internal lives and the real world happening around us. And I think with that in mind, Marshall Pentecost in this movie might just be a perfect example of how meaningful that spiritual work can become. Got into I, I I won't lie. This is a hard movie to do this about because yeah. the whole time I'm like, I, I, the premise of the show is that we take these things too seriously, but I am really taking this way too seriously. Yeah, but I like this, it. No, in I no way it. is the movie interested in this, but but I do I, I do think it's cool that they snuck in that line, right? Yeah, that they they kind of hint so much at these bigger aspects of 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 drift of drift compatibility and of what that means i'm i'm really intrigued by that i guess um yeah i I don't know mike to be honest i I, mostly i'm just curious what your thoughts are in in those terms right of of how that compatibility you you know that that way of like bringing things quote unquote into the drift how that sort of analogs the way that we approach relationships right And, and again not just romantic but 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 any kind of relationship in your life i don't know if you have any any thoughts about that Oh, yeah, tons. Tons and tons. Because, you know, we talk all the time. It's probably actually annoying at this point how many times we mention presence <laughs> and the centrality of being present, you know, reality as it is. And and then also projection. And those things kind of go hand in hand. Um, cause, and that's what, I, what came to my mind as I was listening. Because there's just, there's nothing more damaging to a relationship at least in my life, than when I have projected onto the person in front of me a unreality usually grounded in my past, right? So mm. my wife says something and I've been traumatized in the past by ends of relationships that haven't gone well to hear when someone says this, that means they're about to leave you, right? And she mm. may just be yeah. saying it because she's trying to talk about some subject that has nothing to do with those traumas. 
But if I filter what she says through that story, because essentially what I am doing is applying a story from my past onto the present moment, a story that has nothing to do with the present moment, that has nothing to do with the person in front of me, then how I respond is going to be tainted, right? It's going to be aggressive or it's going to be withdrawing or it's going to, it's going to be something that quite frankly to the person I'm engaging with makes no sense because they don't have any of that story. All they know is they made an offhanded comment and now Mike's being a dick or Mike's pulling away or Mike's uh, retaliating, right? As if he was attacked. And, and that's just, that's a nightmare. I mean, you talk about nightmare fuel, that's nightmare fuel for relationships. That is, the quickest way to force someone away. And really, I mean, you said in so many ways, spirituality is about getting us to the moment where we can meet people in reality as it is and meet them as they are and also present Mm. ourselves as we actually are. Like all of that comes back to just pure presence. Um, I also always like the language of like the true and the false self where there is this true core self on top of which we build all this ego all this, what the mystic call the false self, these projections and these coping mechanisms and these defense mechanisms. And so much of the, the later parts of our lives after our 20s is learning to tear those down so we can actually be whole, present, and honest people again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all yeah. for the purpose of healthy relationship, of being able to engage other people as they are within reality as it is. So that was a lot of kind of circular conversation, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what came to my mind. Absolutely. No, I, I, I'm there for all of that. I think it's so intriguing to me too, the way that I guess I would say there's something counterintuitive about this as well, because again, the process by which you become better at interacting with the world is, is starts with you understanding yourself. Yeah. And I just know that like, I would never have thought to do that. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like, cause you're, you're, you know, I, I think that's the most interesting part of this. You, you were talking about the way that these things from your past come up in, in, in ways that you don't even realize. And that's the part about it, right. Is that you don't examine these things and you don't necessarily know that they have that much control over you until you do examine them. And that's the process by which, again, you're, you're removing these things that you've built up between you and the world. Yeah. Um, and that's not easy. Um, no. Mike and I were talking about that too, uh, about the way that, you know, the, especially starting this process, it's, it's, there's a combination of, um, a, a sense of alarm and relief, I would say, yeah. because there's a relief when you, when you, you know, when you finally find something that you're like, Oh my God, that explains so much of why I, why I do these things because there's so much that we do that we don't understand. Yeah. There's ways that we self-sabotage. There's ways that we, there's coping mechanisms and stuff. And I think for my part, I don't, I'm not sure if I always understood that. And so finding the answer to that or not exactly the answer, but the explanation for that is at once, you know, a huge relief. Cause it's like, okay, well, you know, there, there is, there is a way to look at this. There is a, I can frame this in a sense and I can start to work through it and process it. But it's also alarming because you suddenly start to realize just how many things have control over you that yeah. way. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, it, it just is what it is. You have to go through the work, I guess, but no, uh, I mean, that's, but yeah, I've, that's spot on. I mean, I think the, the, so much of it is, is learned when we're young. And because of that, we don't remember 
offhandedly how these things came about. And, and there's something very hard about that, which is they've been around so long. We, we confuse them with our identity, which I think is something we've talked about before also with character defects, but, but it's so hard because when you start tearing them apart, it feels like you're tearing apart your sense of self. Like I know you and I talked previously about codependency. So many people I know who struggle with codependency, that's just been, they associate that with who they are, right? I am someone who's other focused, who cares about other people, who's always trying to help other people. And they've never even, one, thought to view it through a lens of is this healthy, and two, to think that it needs to be deconstructed until they are forced to. And then it just feels like you're tearing off limbs, like you're tearing off chunks of mm. of how you ex- how you perceive yourself in the world, right? And, and yeah. it's really painful. And I was thinking of it, even as you are talking there, coming to terms with my own anger issues, the process of, of relief and terror... Um, is so real with that one because the terror is as you start to identify that you have anger issues, you have to come to terms with the fact that you're far angrier than you used to think you were. Right. And that's terrifying Mm, because you're suddenly like, Oh, this isn't like a, I sometimes get angry. I'm like, I'm always angry. Oh my gosh. And then two, the relief comes with being like, Oh, but this isn't part of who I am. This can change. Right. I don't have to be this way. And, mm, yeah. and that's, that's the eventual relief. But the first moment is like, oh man, this is a huge part of how I exist in the world more so than I ever imagined. And I actually can't yeah. imagine myself without it because it seems so integral yeah. to how I exist. Right. Um, the relief does come, but the, the agony <laughs> seems to come first. That's for sure. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Over the course of my life, this sentiment has been one of the most consistent, oft-repeated cliches passed down to me. Whether it was my dad telling me that I'm only as good as my word, Jesus' teachings on integrity and simplicity and honesty, or fortune cookies telling me how to live my life. The insistence on simple honesty and integrity with our words and our commitments saturates wisdom teachings from pretty much all directions that they come. And as often happens with cliches, the sentiment often felt hollow and uninspired to me for years. Just be honest and truthful felt overly simplistic and quite frankly, dumb and naive in a world that was seemingly uninterested in doing that at all. However, as I've gotten older, I've come around to believing that this is one of the most important concepts of the spiritual life, or really, a healthy human life. On a personal level, learning to be unafraid of boundaries, concise and honest in communication about said boundaries and expectations, and divorced from the impulse to manipulate, has become a core goal and a value that I strive for. Knowing who you are, maintaining a simple, honest, clear commitment to that identity has simply proven to be the healthiest way for me to live. And I've also found this wisdom to be incredibly pragmatic. As a leader within an organization, communicating clear and honest expectations, goals, and intentions is just an instant salve to many issues that need not exist within an organization. 
As Brene Brown puts it, clarity is kind. It's unkind to hold people to expectations you've never clearly communicated. It's unkind to avoid tough conversations or giving honest feedback. It's unkind to be unclear, even if it's for seemingly kind reasons, such as politeness, nicety, peacekeeping, or encouraging. Without clarity, you diminish the truth of your words, promises, and commitments. You undermine shared goals. You fail to communicate the weight of your expectations without dealing with the frustrations of them going unmet, which inevitably find their way out through gossip, passive aggressiveness, back-channel persuasion, or broken promises. In fear, you say yes to something, but know that it doesn't aid the mission, or worse, that you can't actually do what you've committed to. The lack of clarity quickly becomes manipulative, helping no one and producing endless, unnecessary conflict, fighting, hurt, resentment, and division. It is a kindness to say what you mean and mean what you say, no more, no less. And though not perfect in achieving this, I respect the hell out of Pacific Rim for striving to do just that. We live in an age of Hollywood filmmaking where manipulation, intended or not, seems to be a staple in cinematic production. Sometimes it's overt. Corporations ham-fisting mechanical, soulless themes of justice or inclusion into Marvel movies without thought, depth, or nuance. Not because they care about these crucial topics, but because they want to check off the box to try to manipulate us into giving them money. And just a brief note, I don't feel this way about Black Panther, which rules, but I do feel this way about many other Marvel franchises. But more often, it's not overt. It's subtle. Or, if I'm feeling gracious, it's unintentional. Movies that are unclear about what they want to be, and thus try to be a little bit of everything. In an effort to win audiences over, they force love stories, comedy, emotional beats, all trying to elicit emotional responses. Even if these things don't fit their movie, don't honestly attempt to or succeed at capturing or earning the weight of what they're conveying or talking about. Films that, due to a lack of clarity, say yes to everything, mean nothing, meander and stray from their intended purpose. Which isn't to say that films should always have clear intentions or messages, shallow plots or themes. That is the purpose of some great movies, is to obscure, and to muddle, and to make opaque. I'm talking about films that, due to a lack of clarity or intended effort to hide a film's true intentions, become muddled and confused for no reason, and thus ineffective. It's the films that lack clarity without purpose that I'm speaking to. And often these films just aren't good. But worse, they just leave me feeling manipulated. They seemingly say they are about one thing, while ultimately giving me something else, often in a frustrating, half-hearted, and dishonest way. And this is what I love about Pacific Rim. When I first saw the trailer, I saw a movie that promised me one thing. Giant robots fighting even bigger monsters. A spectacle movie that makes one promise, which is that you will have a good time. And I was skeptical. 
in the age of two-and-a-half-hour Godzilla movies with more philosophy than monster fights, of Marvel movies focused more on half-hearted, emotionally manipulative, and quickly reversed character deaths, I was just sure that Pacific Rim was trying to trick me, that it would try to be more than the good time it promised. And I was wrong. Apart from a few missteps, Pacific Rim knows what it is, clearly communicates what it wants to be, and follows through on what it commits to doing. It knows it's a spectacle. It knows it doesn't need to make sense. It knows that it's about one thing. Robot fights, monsters fights, explosions. And mostly it stays true to that commitment. At least more than almost any other big dumb action monster blockbuster ever. It doesn't try to be something that it's not or mislead us into thinking that it's more than it is. It doesn't try to muddle what to expect from it or make promises it can't deliver. It sets the table, breezes through its exposition, throws out some cliche characters, and then gets to work giving us what it said it would. Some of the coolest, most B.A. visuals we've ever seen. Complete, beautiful colors, slick CGI, big stakes, collapsing cities, sweet gimmicks, and a few epic, though utterly cheesy monologues. Pacific Rim is clear in its intentions, in its honesty, in its integrity. It says what it means, and means what it says. From start to finish, it's yes means yes, it's no means no's, promising providing nothing more and nothing less than what it set out to. And for me, that clarity feels refreshing, fun, playful, and above all, kind. Can I elect you for something after that? I don't even know. I just want to. I want to vote for you. In some Mike capacity. for president. This is, this is music to my ears. If anyone ever ran on a platform and gave that exact essay word for word, take my money. I'd be it. I mean, whatever you want. Yeah, no, I I think that's great. I um, obviously I'm I'm completely there, especially in the context of modern kind of entertainment. And you know, the thing I resonate with most is, is just the idea of. There's so much content that's trying to be everything for everyone, yeah. right? That is being explicitly guided to, we need to make sure that we capture this demographic and we need to make sure that we, you know, aren't too exciting, but aren't too boring and that we're not too, too high, not too high stakes, and not too low stakes. And we can't kill off this character because they're, you know, someone may love them and will be stop watching or whatever. So there is something so refreshing when it's like, what happens when you just know exactly what you are and everything in the movie is in service of that, right? Yes. Because that's the that's what happens with these other things is that they end up having internal contradictions where it's like, man, we've been being up on Marvel a lot, but let's just keep going. Um, you know, Mike has often used the amazing example of uh, Avengers, ooh, what's it called? Endgame? Infinity War. <laughs> Infinity War is the first one and Endgame is the second one. Uh Goodbye to all the listeners who love Marvel and just peaced out at when we couldn't remember the name. But at any rate, um, 
Avengers uh, Infinity War is such a great example because on the one hand, it wants to have this setup where you feel the emotional weight of axing all of these characters, right? And I actually think it, it executes that pretty well. But on the other hand, there's an internal tension in the movie because they also don't want you to think that those characters aren't going to keep existing and you'll keep yeah. get to keep having fun with them. And it's and that's just part of how they have to do that. And that's the IP kind of driven world. So all of that to say, like, so like if you imagine Infinity War made the way that Pacific Rim was made, characters like that would have been killed and that would have been it. Yeah. Because that was because, again, everything would have been in service of those emotional beats um, and not even that emotional beat necessarily, but just of that whatever it is that the movie's trying to be. Um don't get me wrong. I, I think probably pushed. I would say those are as good as, if not maybe better movies than Pacific Rim on some objective scale. But <laughs> for my money, I have more fun with this. I, I, yeah. I think that this is almost, I would almost say this is executed better than something like that. Because again, it's single-minded. It knows what it wants to be. And it just is that. And everything's in service of that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I have seen more movies in the last decade that left me asking the question, who is this for in like a bad way where I'm just like, I don't yeah. even know who wants this. Like whose movie is this? And it's always, it's always because of that muddled intention. And, and I think Marvel is a culprit of that sometimes where I'm just like, I just don't know who you're trying to even please with this. I, I don't, if you're a self-reflective person, you're, the way you ham fisted in this shot in which all the female characters are posing in a final battle is so painfully not genuine. Right. And it's yeah. so painfully corporate that it's not going to make them happy. It's not going to make the misogynist happy. Um, most people are just going to be kind of like, I don't get it. Like, why is this happening? And, and it's not a kid's movie cause there's all these dark themes, but it's also not a movie for adults because it doesn't actually honor those dark themes with any substance. And I don't know. I'm just increasingly, this is kind of a rant at this point, but I'm increasingly at the <laughs> point where my biggest criticism of film is, is that I don't know who this yeah. is for. I don't know what, what purpose this serves in the consciousness of our culture. Right. I don't know who likes this. I don't really get what it's trying to be because it, it feels like again, in trying to be everything, it's actually nothing at all. And yeah, and I don't know. So, yes, maybe they're objectively better. They're definitely better written, probably, than Pacific Rim. But I don't think they're better at achieving their goal. I don't think they're better at, sure. like, what you said, execution. I think there's something we talk about all the time about there's this scale between ambition and execution. And the, the masterpieces of the universe are those that have high ambition and match it with execution. And then the movies that are fun but probably not very good have high ambition but don't execute it. But there's something to be said about a perfect movie with low execute, low ambition, but perfect execution. Right. And that is a movie yeah. that lasts. That is a movie that is enjoyable. And I don't know. That's in rant. Yeah. That's what Pacific Rim is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I, I completely agree. I, I'm, I'm there for all of that. Again, this is just music to my ears. I'm, yeah. I'm just, if you could write a similar speech for Avatar whenever we get around <laughs> to it. Don't feel that way about Avatar. <laughs> don't. <laughs>
Hey, everybody. Thanks again so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate that. We don't often say this, but if you know friends who might be interested in a podcast like this, we would encourage you just to let them know. Maybe send them an episode that you really like. We don't really do any advertising, so we appreciate that. Before we get to the end of the episode where Mike and I have each prepared a final question, we do want to let you know the next episode is going to be The Terminator, the 1984 science fiction action film directed by James Cameron. Uh, spoiler, Mike, one of my favorite movies of all time. Over, uh, under, literally, my top. Over, under yeah. eight Arnold Schwarzenegger impressions on the pod. <laughs> Uh, over easily because the eight would be four a piece. I feel like we're gonna get four a piece in the first twenty minutes. Yeah. Okay. Like, are you counting just saying I'll be back? Yeah. Like if if no, like, yeah. is that every impression? time? Then yeah, no. Okay. No way. Yeah. No, Game we're, on. We're... <laughs> Let's see what we could do here. Hopefully, you guys are all in for that. It's an amazing movie. Watch that before listening to the to the episode. Okay. Mike, we've each prepared a final question for the other. Uh, I went first in the essay, so why don't you go first for the question? It's a simple one, John. Would you neuro handshake with me? <laughs> um, no, is the answer. <laughs> and I, and I, I feel like I owe you an explanation. You owe me an apology uh, is what you owe me, John. <laughs> How well, dare maybe you? It's, let's call it a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Uh, I don't want to. <laughs> That's not better. That's not an apology. <laughs> That's a little bit of an apology. No, it's not. No, no, yeah. You know, you know, Mike, I'm sure this is going to come up with my therapist at some point, but at this moment in my life, I don't think I want a neuro handshake with anyone. <laughs> I think I'm out. I, you know, call it whatever you want, problems with intimacy or something, but I, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm comfortable over here. What, what I don't trauma of your life mind. would I slip into? Um... Was it the, uh, probably was it the the time I asked you about spankings on the Monty Python pod. God, why? How has this happened? How did? How am I living this again? How is the nightmare return? I was gonna say bullying in middle school, but sure, it's probably that one. Why yeah. not bullying in a podcast? I'm not even. You know, well. I just, I just, I just want, I just, I just want this then. I want this to be over. Here's my question, and it's gonna sound a little familiar, but it's not exactly the same. It's just very similar. For a convoluted set of reasons, there is a kaiju coming, and you, Mike, have to pick a co-pilot. The catch is, you can't pick any family member: wife, brother, mom, dad. Mm, okay. Who do you pick? Do not say me, because I won't do it. And humanity will be doomed. <laughs> Definitely John, just because he doesn't want to, and I think that's something. You would just do it. Um, you would you would doom all of humanity for the bit. Yeah, is what it'd be saying. a good bit. Okay, uh, that's a They're good question. With you. That's a good question. Because um, <laughs> your brother will be the obvious one, right? Or your wife, I guess. If you yeah, want to yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of someone. Who's like me? I mean, honestly, I think the answer would be Richard Rohr because he's just probably a floating cloud of peace, and he he'd Mike, be he'd be you like have the, just placed, <laughs> You have just placed the image into my head of Richard Rohr <laughs> in a Jaeger piloting it, <laughs> and great. I just want to thank you for that. That is that is that is really going to get me through through the next couple you know, of weeks. I'm just going to keep. 
keep returning to that. Other answer would be, we were just talking about how much better this would be with Will Smith. So why not Will Smith? Let's just do it. Will... Let's fix the movie. And to be clear, not a char- not any of his characters from his no, movies, but Will, Will Smith, Smith himself. Welcome okay. to Earth. Yes. Oh, what a what a horrible future Dude, uh, we've dreamed up. There's your picture. What? Will Smith, Richard Rohr piloting a gunship. <laughs> That's it. Get me out of oh here. Get God. me out of the picture. Come on. Let's... let's why can we make this is there it's such a it, you know what this is a niche demographic i'm not going to say that this has a wide appeal but if you're listening out there and you have some money there's a few people like at least 10 who would pay like probably 60 dollars each to watch this uh, so yeah take my money yeah that i'm, I'm in 100 percent. well mike thank you so much uh as always and thank you all for listening this has been this film could be your life and uh we'll see you on the next episode <laughs>